We're going to go at this very differently than we did last service, and so I'm going to make an, uh, you know, an advertisement here. If you haven't ever gone and listened to any of my stuff online, um, the sermon from last service will supplement this sermon a lot. Especially if you want more of like the dates and times or when I say Caligula, you don't know what I mean. Okay? That story I told last service. We just did the story. We barely looked at the Bible at all. Um, this service, we're going to do the other way around. We're going to go through the Bible. But if you were here last service, and some of you were, you got a framework now to see the story in, right? So it really does benefit you to have both of these things together. I try to do that, by the way, every week. It's not always quite as, as complete as this week will be, and I don't need to talk about it. But again, if you go home and go to our website on Thursday, spa15.org, you'll be able to listen to the other sermon there, probably. Sometimes it's a little later in the week it shows up. But you can do that every week and start to supplement your growth here with more of what you already heard, but different. It's not like the same sermon again. So it, it reinforces all right, so our, our plan today is to journey to the tomb with St. Paul. This guy whose name is, is really Saul, Saul of Tar Tarsus, a, a Pharisee, a Roman citizen, which for a Jew is not that common, especially since he inherited the citizenship. That's even less common. So he's trained in the diaspora. That means he knows Greek Judaism as much as uh, Jerusalem Hebrew Judaism, and he's a leader amongst that Greek Judaism. These are sometimes called the Hellenists in your Bible, and we, we may see them today. Um, but he, as a young man, an up-and-comer, a, a wonderkindin of, of the entire future of the Jewish people, is now in Jerusalem, along with famous people like Gamaliel, one of the most famous rabbis of all time, uh, as well as uh, Nicodemus, uh, who's known from the Gospel of John, Joseph of Arimathea, who had Jesus' body buried, uh, around 36 AD, they're all in Jerusalem with each other, and some of them in this Sanhedrin, this government, believe uh, that Jesus is risen from the dead, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, and, and some of them don't, uh, Saul of Tarsus, but more powerful people than him, Caiaphas, still around, just about to retire from another run at high priesthood which is really being done in the name of his father-in-law, Annas. You might have heard that name in John's Gospel during Holy Week as well. And Annas has a son named Jonathan. And guess who's going to be high priest when Caiaphas retires? I wish you know it's Jonathan. So the family who's most interested in making sure that guy Jesus, who they murdered illegally through a trial, never comes to light about what they did. They're very focused in stopping this Christianity thing. And they give Saul a little bit of power right at a time when there's a power vacuum in Jerusalem because Pontius Pilate's been removed from office. And the next guys that are going to come in aren't there yet. That's when you have the mob murder stoning to death of Stephen. And I'm assuming you know enough about the story to know, oh, they killed this Christian for believing in Christ. And then we talked about this recently, I believe, last week even, that from there, 
Saul initiates an, a persecution with legal powers in Jerusalem. That is, he begins to go house to house with the police force, arresting you if you're a Christian and throwing you in prison, which leads to all of the Christians leaving Jerusalem. They all go to different places, uh, except for some of the most, well, serious, the apostles themselves, uh, they remain there. This is all happening again in 36 AD, Three years after Jesus is risen, three years after Peter starts preaching to thousands of people in Solomon's portico in the temple, uh, three years they're sick and tired of this big raucous church within a church that's taken over their industry, and they're going to have it done with. Stephen's killed, arrests happen, and Saul, once he has all of this in hand in Jerusalem, they, they can't find Christians in Jerusalem, they've been scattered, he decides time to take the fight elsewhere. Now, here's where we're going to make use of our little maps. I don't know if first service put them all back, but there should be some little maps around in your pew. Um, and I want you to find uh, the one that's on kind of a vertical. It looks vertical up and down. Uh, and you can kind of see it uh, online here if you want. I'll try to do that too. Um, I just want you to find Jerusalem. It's written right there by the big word Judea. And right next to Jerusalem's a circle that you should recognize if you know maps. That's a lake, right? Um, that's, this, that's the Dead Sea. And then the line going from the Dead Sea north is the Jordan River, and it goes up to a little circle. That's the Sea of Galilee. If you can memorize what that two circles and line look like, you can always find a map of the Holy Land on any map, if you know to look for the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. In any case, uh, what I want you to see is how north Damascus is past the Sea of Galilee. This is outside of Jewish territory. This is into a different Roman province. So Pontius Pilate's been fired. Uh, his replacement's not that good and isn't even necessarily there yet. But forget all this. We're circling the wagons and taking control of our own people, Jewish people. And now we're going to go to the Syrians. We're going to make sure this Christianity never gets outside of our region. And we're going to crush it here, starting from the outside and smash it. And he does this again with legal, legal writs. Right? Uh, he's going authorized by the Jewish government, which is not the Roman government, but has the authority of the Roman government. Sometimes he's going with that power to Damascus to arrest people, and that's when the famous story, right? He's knocked off his horse. There's no, there's no horse in the book of Acts, uh, but, but who knows how he got there. He's knocked to the ground by this beaming white light and this voice of Jesus that everyone else thinks is thunder. The story goes from there, but now... We're going to start with some text that's right before that, okay? Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Uh, I can't tell you what page it is in your cute Bible. I can't in a moment. I don't have that in front of me. Uh, Acts 9, chapter 1 is going to be on page 917, unless you have a large print. Uh, and also, today I'm doing something a little different. I don't know how much I'll do this, but... For the sake of my own remembering where things are, I'm using my Bible instead of a pew Bible. I usually preach from the pew Bible. Um, uh, my Bible is pocket-sized. I got notes in it. I got all sorts of stuff. I'm used to it. Uh, but it is New King James. So it's going to read a little different as I read it out loud, but that's okay. You got a text in front of you, you know, whatever your Bible has. Um, should be close enough. But if it's different, you're like, what's that? But that's why. It's just a different translation this week. Um, so chapter 9 verse 1 says this though about, about Saul's life after the death of Stephen before he goes to Damascus. This is the life he's living. Okay, Do you want to live this life? Uh, then Saul 
still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, that's Jonathan, son of Annas, and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's going to go to the synagogues. He's going to start finding out, you know anyone who talks about Jesus? He's going to go to their houses. They're going to disappear. They're just going to disappear from Damascus. And these governments do this, right? Governments do this. It's not new. It's not conspiracy. It's just, it's just what happens when you're in power and you're trying to make your power stick. And now again, I want you to put yourself in this guy's life. What would you imagine life is like in the morning when you wake up breathing threats and murder? Or maybe after dinner, breathing threats and murder. Like, the point here a little bit is, do you see how unhappy this man has to be? He has to be living one of the most wretched, driven, fear-filled, lonely lives possible, maliciously thinking nobody's as good as he is or as smart as he is, and they all need to change to be like him so that God can win. It's his life every day, and he's willing to kill people for it. That's the guy that God knocks off the horse or whatever, hits at the blinding light, and makes sit in a room blind for three days. Death and resurrection, anybody? Blind in a room of darkness for three days until a man named Ananias uh, is sent to him. Ananias is a Christian in the area. Um, and we're actually going to uh, maybe look at him here. Let's, let's skip ahead a little bit to, uh, yeah, verse 10 of chapter 9, uh, where it says, now there was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. Good Old Testament flavor in that right there. Uh, so the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight, we'd call that Straight Street, um, and uh, inquire of, at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer. For my name's sake. All right, so Ananias, you know, you think you've got to suffer. Wait, what do you see what I do to this guy you're going to talk to? But can you put yourself in Ananias' shoes for a moment here, right? Jesus shows up in the dream last night. Hey, go talk to Governor Pritzker. He's been praying. I, actually, I think Saul probably, I probably think the average person who's a Jew and a Christian at this time hates Saul quite a bit more than I hate Governor Pritzker. I don't like the man. He's, he does very wicked things. But he hasn't actually tried to kill me yet, okay? Uh, and so, uh, who do you put in, Hitler? Hitler's such a cartoon now, it's kind of hard to use him in any way, but like, yeah, yeah, in a vision, the night before Hitler kills himself, go talk to him, he's ready to convert. And you're like, afraid of this guy, right? Ananias doesn't. And this theme's gonna come back here. Uh, what, what happens next is pretty cool. The scales fall from his eyes. He gets baptized. He eats food. Uh, and then he, it says, immediately began to preach the gospel in, in Damascus. And uh, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this part of the story. But what happens, I want to show you this. Um, uh, look at verse 23 of, of uh, 
chapter 9. Uh, uh, no, we'll, we'll read from 20. We'll just read from 20. It says, Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who call on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. Now, put your finger between verse 25 and 26, right? From large basket to uh, come to Jerusalem. Three years. Three years passes. It doesn't tell you. Three years passes. And, and how this happens is a bit of a question. We know he was in Damascus preaching, making uh, non-Christian, Greek-speaking Jews very angry enough to kill him. We know, obviously, he has to escape once. Uh, we know from the book of Galatians he'll spend uh, two years, three years, uh, a lot of the time, some of the time, in Arabia, which is east, not necessarily the desert. There's uh, Nabatia, there's a kingdom that's there that is mentioned in 2 Corinthians at the end of the book. The Nabatean king does not like St. Paul. Um, he wants to have St. Paul killed too. So Paul manages, during these three years, to be in two places, Damascus and Nabatia, and in both places he has to leave because they want to kill him. That's his first three years as a Christian. No church planting, no converts, really, and even where he goes where nobody knows nothing, they hate him. <laughs> and then he comes back and one way or the other goes down to Jerusalem to finally meet with Peter and James and John and, and all of those. Um, uh, this is going to be in 38. So about, again, two or three years of this life in Damascus, he goes down in 38 and all of this time, remember, what, when was the last time he was there? He walked out of the city as the sheriff of Nottingham in Prince John's name to go kill a bunch of people three years ago. And now he's back. He's like, so can I talk to the leaders? And they're like, we've heard a story, but we've heard a lot of stories in our lifetime. I watched the news too, and at a certain point I stopped trusting it, don't you? Huh? And that's exactly how they view him. I mean, is this a, a, a psyop, three years undercover? Expose the root? Sounds like a good plan, actually. It really does. Uh, and so they don't trust him at all. Uh, and he's only there for 15 days. Uh, somewhere within the first few days, though, Barnabas does convince them to meet with him. Barnabas is a preacher. Uh, he's called an apostle at various places. He's known as the son of encouragement. That's actually what his name means. And he'll be back in the story later. But here, uh, he sees Saul, Paul, arguing with Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem about Jesus, yes, being risen from the dead. And he sees it enough over a couple days to say to the apostles, James, Peter, John, you guys should meet with this guy. You got to meet with this guy. So they do. They meet with him. Uh, and Paul talks about this in Galatians. They extend the right hand of fellowship. Uh, they ask him to remember the poor, and they understand that he's going to be sent to the Gentiles, because that's what Jesus had told him, rather than staying uh, in the Jerusalem area. But he has, again, continued to talk with the Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem, and within 15 days, they want to kill him. Have you, have you noticed a pattern in Paul's life yet? Like, the guy can't go anywhere without a murder plot. It's kind of amazing. And it's all about, I used to be a Jew, and now I'm a Christian. 
that's pretty much what his story is the entire time. Uh, the apostles themselves make sure he gets to, I think it's Chinchea, which is on the coast. They put him on a boat, and the boat doesn't set ground again until it hits Tarsus, which is all the way across the Mediterranean Sea, uh, which is where Paul is from. So can you imagine? He, he comes in. No, we don't want to see him. Okay, we'll see him. And get out of here, please. Go home. And Paul's there for like another two years. So we're looking at six years. No one wants to listen to Paul. In the meantime, uh, something else happens. This is going to be uh, in chapter 11. Uh, so if you'd turn your way uh, to chapter 11, verse 19. It's at the end. You know, from that point where Saul goes to Tarsus, he disappears and is all about Peter for several chapters until the end of chapter 11, um, uh, which is going to start at verse 19. This is a bit of a throwback. It says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen followed as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but Jews only. So, in the story, uh, uh, oh, I, no, we're about to hit a part. In the story, um, we are still in the, the realm where uh, Saul's persecution has driven these Jewish Christians out of Jerusalem. And where they're going is like, hey, grandma in Damascus, I'm fleeing from like tyrannical government. I'm coming. So they don't call. They just show up knocking on the door, right? Some go to Egypt. Some go to Rome. They go all over the entire Roman Empire, wherever the Jewish diaspora from 500 years prior had already put Jewish communities. And they go to these Greek-speaking Jewish communities as Christians and live among them as Christians. They join other churches with the gospel and begin to talk. Yeah? Uh, and, well, again, what happens is they end up in Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. It's going to tell us more, but let's, let's find those on the map here, too. On, again, the vertical size of the map, um, you can see that Antioch is even further north than Damascus by quite a ways, and it's off the island of, of Cyprus. And Cyprus is uh, a pretty, pretty famous place. Uh, it's hard to miss on the bigger map, so you can always kind of find your way to the Sea of Galilee from the island of Cyprus or Crete on a map. Uh, but you can see, again, not only how far away Tarsus is, where he was in Tarsus, Paul, but now there are Christians in Antioch. They're almost, they're almost all the way to Tarsus where, where Paul is. And uh, what happens is, uh, well, next verse, verse 20. Some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So you have Christians going through Cyprus and Cyrene, to Antioch and converting people and planting a church. We're going to talk about the church in Antioch as our focus next week. We'll come back to this a bit here. Um, but here's what happens. Verse 22. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. This happened recently in Acts with Peter. When they hear about in uh, Caesarea, uh, that there are some people who want to know about Christ. Peter is sent out on a journey and then expected to come back with news about how it is or to, to make it better than it is. They do the same thing here with Barnabas. This guy who introduced Saul to the apostles 
who's been serving as a preacher in Jerusalem, near Solomon's portico. It's going well in Antioch. That's like not a day's journey. That's like a couple of days, if not a week's journey. Uh, move to Antioch, Barnabas. And he does, right? He does. Uh, verse 23, when he came and had seen the grace of God, this is Christianity blooming amongst Jewish-speaking Christians, or excuse me, Greek-speaking Jews, I said that backwards, uh, he was glad and encouraged them, that's his name, all with, that with, a, uh, with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For, this is talking about Barnabas, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So, well, church growth. You start to see Greek-speaking Jews called Hellenists. They're Jewish in culture, but they're Greek in mind and language. Uh, they're converting in large numbers in Antioch. Now, do you remember who wanted to kill Paul in Jerusalem that got him put on a boat? He wasn't talking to the Pharisees. He wasn't talking to the Sadducees. He was talking to the Hellenists. They're on vacation to offer their sacrifices. They're the ones that didn't want him around. They're the ones that now are listening in Antioch. And Barnabas goes, one plus one equals two. And he takes a little trip. He grabs Saul from Tarsus, brings him back. That's the next verses. We're going to read that too. Verse 25, Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. We're going to talk more about life in Antioch next week. In some ways, this is set up for life in Antioch. And then we got to that life in Berea, which I hope to hit today. Um, but Paul's then there as an associate pastor, can you think of it that way, in this metropolitan, very wealthy city of Antioch that's got a really great growing Christian congregation happening. Uh, and, and in the midst of all of this, well, um, more happens. You can skim verses 27 um, to 30 with your eyes as you talk, but uh, there is still prophecy alive in the early church. Um, I believe prophecy has ended with the deaths of the apostles in that era that we're looking at, but um, prophecy is very much alive uh, in the early church. And there is a man named Agabus who's just a Christian in Antioch, and the Holy Spirit tells him there's going to be a famine in three years. And this came to pass during the reign of Claudius Caesar. It will be his story for another time. One of the least important ones, really, in, in a lot of ways. But the famine takes place. And so all the Christians in Antioch decide, since we know the future— but there's going to be a famine. Let's store some goods up. And then when there's a problem, we'll send those goods as a gift to those who need them. And after several years, that's indeed what was going on, where Antioch had stored up some, some funds in reserve, the rainy day fund or the endowment or what have you. And they realized that this is more useful right now for the people in Jerusalem who are Christians to have food uh, than it is for us to keep in the bank. And they sent Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem to deliver this. What's maybe most important is that this doesn't happen um, until uh, later, like 43 AD. So several years again from where we last were in Jerusalem have passed. And uh, during this time, the persecution of Saul that had destroyed the church and made Solomon's portico, you know, only the apostles are showing up there. Three years have gone by again. Four, six years have gone by again. Christianity is once again part of the temple reality, maybe not as big as it was, um, but having some success. So he goes down to meet with an even greater church down there and bring, bring a gift to them. 
And that's where we got there last week. Uh, the guy who's in charge of Jerusalem, just like right now, like he literally just got put in charge by Caligula, is a guy named Herod Antipas I, who, first sermon, go back and listen, but he's been groomed to reign this area of the world on behalf of the emperor Caligula since they were both knee-high to a grasshopper under grandfather Tiberius's tutelage. This guy's this guy's not just a king. This guy's a Roman politician and a good one. And he is successfully containing this ragged area of the empire throughout what we see take place as he arrests Peter and has James put to death in Jerusalem. While do you notice Paul's there? Paul's there. Uh, this is all uh, taking place again, probably sometime around uh, forty-five. A.D. No, a little before that, 43 A.D. Of course, Herod, uh, this same Herod, after Peter escapes from the angels, we got that last week, or escapes with the angels' help last week, chapter 12, this same Herod uh, will then be killed while at an event in Tyre and Sidon, the chapter 12 tells you about that, in 44 A.D. So just after he can't keep hold of Peter, he goes up and preaches to Tyre about how he's a god or whatever, and he gets struck down. That's, again, Herod Agrippa I. You ready for a call-out box? There are four Herods. There are four Herods in your Bible. Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa I, Herod Agrippa II. Okay? Shorthand. Herod the Great kills some babies. Easy to remember. Huh? Herod the Great kills the babies. Herod Antipas tries Jesus on Monday, Thursday. Herod Antipas. Now, he is the nephew of Herod the Great, something like that. Um, and then you have uh, Herod Agrippa I. Uh, what is he known for? He kills James and puts Peter in prison and then dies in Tyre. In a short time, again, Caligula's good buddy. Uh, but a good, a good leader... Uh, he is the grandson of Herod the Great. His father is Herod the Great's son. His father was killed by Herod the Great for being his son, because that's a threat to the throne. And so his mother, Bernice, fled to Rome when Agrippa I was like two. And so that's how he ends up beside Caligula growing up under Tiberius' eye. So real, isn't it? It's like really happened. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's our religion. Um, so. Uh, that's Herod Antipas I, and then uh, his son, Herod Antipas II, uh, he's the one who tries Paul at the end of our story today, okay? And he's a weak, weak king. So Herod the Great, uh, he was powerful. He was mad, he was cruel, he was powerful, that's why they call him great. Uh, Herod Antipas, he's a nobody. He's a backwoods ruler who just gets written into the story because he's faithless. Uh, he kills John the Baptist. That's why we know who he is, really. Right. Um, Herod Agrippa I, a powerful, would-be Roman Jewish, I don't know, emperor eventually, maybe, but he just gets struck down by God and dies. Uh, and then his son, the second, who's a weakling politician that manages to change sides in several conflicts and so escape the collapse of the Roman emperor, Empire over the next 60 years. He, he stays in politics and ends up with the Vespasian uh, dynasty uh, after there's an overthrow of Nero and a bunch of stuff. So that's him. But he's there at the end of our story today. All right. So Paul is with Barnabas in Jerusalem 
bringing money to the Jerusalem church, which is big and thriving, while Herod's going to make a play to put it out with the sword again, puts James to the sword, uh, puts Peter in prison. Peter escapes. Peter comes to the house. Peter says, i got to go somewhere else. And remember, he ascends. Like, he doesn't descend. But in the book, he's gone. I'll come back in chapter 15 like this for a moment, but he's pretty much gone. Where does he go? Antioch. Wouldn't you know? With who? Well, Paul's there for a while. They're there together. Do they travel at the same time? Maybe not. Uh, chapter 13 tells us when, when Paul goes up. It, it says, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 25. Verse right before chapter 13. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. And, and John Mark belongs in the story quite a bit more than I'm going to put him in today. Uh, so they go back. And uh, we're just going to keep reading from there, though. So now Barnabas and Paul are back in their church, Antioch. Uh, now, in the church that was at Antioch, 13 verse 1, there were certain prophets and teachers. We already heard about Agabus and the famine. Here, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, that means he was probably black, probably an African, probably not a Jew, um, Simeon, uh, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, don't know if he's a Jew or not, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Uh, so this is Herod Antipas, I think, being mentioned here. Um, and a, a relation of his who's become a Christian, a friend of his who's become a Christian, Manaean. They're all given special leadership gifts by God for the sake of the early church. And verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, as they're praying and they're fasting, uh, the Holy Spirit said... Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and they sent them away. Here begins the three, there's four, but three acts, missionary journeys of Paul. He will take him through Asia Minor, which on the map on your back is this like little and a dog head sticking out to the north of Jerusalem and Judea. That's Asia Minor. Across the water in the upper northwest where it says Macedonia. Um, that's the northeast side of Greece. He doesn't get there yet in, in uh, the first journey. He just goes through Asia Minor and comes back to Jerusalem. In his second journey, he will get to Greece, move all the way through Greece, down through Athens, down to Corinth, spend a good year in Corinth, and then hit Ephesus. For the first time, before he goes back to Jerusalem briefly, then there's his third journey in which he goes back, planning to go everywhere, but he gets stuck in Ephesus for like two and a half years. Um, and I hope we get there uh, in the storytelling today. But uh, in Ephesus for two and a half years, um, after a while, he's, he's, well, a lot's gone by, actually. By the time he's in Ephesus for his third journey, it's 52. 52 AD. It's been 20 years since Jesus died. I think at this point he's written maybe 1 Thessalonians. Like that's it. Nothing else has been written yet. Right? But he's there in 52 AD and he gets a hanker. He's, he's older. He's in his 60s probably. And he, he kind of thinks he needs to move on. And before he moves on though, his plan is to go to Spain. Rome and Spain. Uh, Lusitania. Uh, Spain. Uh, his plan is to go there, but before he does that, he wants to see Jerusalem one more time. So he plans to make it back for Passover to Jerusalem at the end of his second journey. And uh, he gets there, and that's where we're going to jump ahead to, to read here. We're all the way at chapter 21. 
which you'll have to page forward to find your page number. Uh, chapter 21, verses 15 through 21. Uh, after those days, we packed up and went to Jerusalem, it says. Now, Luke is with him. And he says, we now. He wasn't there earlier in the book. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Yeah, so the Christians now, they want Paul to come back. That's good. That's an, that's an enhancement. On the following day, day two, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When they had greeted them, he told them in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. So there's more here, but you know, next day, after finally getting back with many plans about the future, this is just a week-long feast or so, right? Um, he meets with the leaders, and they say, we're glad you're here. We're glad that the non-Jews are also Christians, too. Uh, but there's some pretty nasty rumors about you, not just that you're telling the non-Jews they don't have to be circumcised to be saved. You're actually telling them that circumcision is stupid, and anyone who does it's an idiot and not really a Christian. And you hate us, and you hate everything about us. So, since that's what people are saying about you, let's try not to have it look like that. Um, here's our plan. Their plan is, here's these three guys who would like to take an expensive vow. Now, in the Levitical code system, you can take vows for all sorts of reasons. They can be because I did something wrong and I'm sorry. They can be because I want to do something right. Especially, I want to do something right, so I'm going to take a vow, I'm going to make a sacrifice, I'm going to show a demonstration of it publicly, and then I will believe that God's going to answer my prayer. That's Levitical Israelite assumptions. Okay, This is, this is good and normal and what they're supposed to do. Here's three guys who want to do this now. Of course, the sacrificial system doesn't work anymore, but it still points to Christ if you believe in Christ. And so, hey, Paul, will you pay for these three guys' expensive vows and take one yourself? Shave your head with them. After the seven days of purification of Pascha, the temple, everyone will know you follow the codes of Moses. Paul says, no problem, I'll pay for it. Now, how do you get that money? That's a different story, I suppose. It's question, though, isn't it? Uh, so uh, he does it. Seven days go by. We're on like day eight, something like that, day nine. He goes in the temple, and what do you know? A mob, a riot, uh, an arrest. Uh, he nearly is killed. He gets escaped, but it's only because the Roman centurion uh, arrests him, right? We've, we've heard this story somewhere before. Uh, and Paul wants to preach more. Uh, at that night, that day, uh, they learn about a plot to murder Paul at trial. And so rather than go to a second hearing, right, uh, the, the same centurion puts four squads, I think it's four squads of soldiers with Paul and sends him out of the gate of this city surrounded by military at 3 a.m. in the morning to march him overland to the sea where probably he gets put on a ship and sailed to Caesarea where he gets put in prison for five days. So we're like, we're like, 14 days, two weeks from when he went down to Jerusalem for the feast, right? Two weeks from that, he's in prison in Caesarea being interviewed by this guy named uh, Felix, 
who is uh, following Agrippa's death. There's a series of proconsuls in the area, all who last like two years. They're all corrupt. They're all greedy. They all do very poorly. Uh, Felix and Festus are both in that mix. Uh, but uh, Felix pretty much says, uh, so, Paul, here's how it's going to go. If you pay me, you're free. If you don't pay me, you'll just be here till I retire. Uh, and that's what happens. Uh, he sits in prison for two years, uh, waiting for uh, Felix to be fired, which he, he is. He's fired. He's replaced by Festus. Festus comes in and within just a couple of days has learned of Paul's case. Within a week has visited Jerusalem to talk to his accusers and come back and is putting Paul on trial privately. That tells you this Felix guy, he might not have succeeded, but he went in planning to clean house. Like he was going to take whatever the leftovers were, he was going to get it done and run the government. It doesn't work out for him in the long run. But in any case, uh, you know, during his, uh, his trial of Paul to find out what he's supposed to kill him for, because he doesn't understand it, because it sounds like it's some quibble over the resurrection of the dead existing or something like that. Um, uh, so explain it to me, Paul. Paul does explain it, but in the course of this explanation, as there's a bunch of back and forth, he appeals to Caesar. Which, since it's a Roman court and he's a Roman citizen, he can do. You and I, we couldn't do that. We only get to have the court we get. But if you're a super cool Roman citizen, you go straight to the Supreme Court just by saying, I want to. So that's what he does. He appeals to Nero Caesar to judge whether Christianity should be true or not, and free or not. Uh, um, and, I mean, does he know who Nero is? Probably not the way you do yet. Nero has come to power. Uh, he's doing pretty well early. He just ends up being crazy and cruel, but he's not like, uh, he's not like Caligula, where he's actually lost his mind entirely. So, so he appeals to Nero, right? Uh, and, and from here then, uh, Festus doesn't waste any time. He puts them on a boat, and they start sailing for Rome, but that's a long trip. That's a long trip on a boat. Uh, they will end up on the island of Malta three months later. Uh, this is 55 AD still. They crash on the island of Malta. Uh, Malta, if you can find it on a map, it's not one of ours here. Malta is a little tiny island south of Italy, and if you miss Malta, you just keep going toward the Pacific Ocean. Now, the way they land at Malta is what makes that point so interesting. They land at Malta after 14 days in a complete whirlwind storm with no sails and very little food and nothing left on the ship. They almost threw the prisoners overboard. It's raining and pouring 24 hours a day. You're sleeping with it moving back and forth. People are puking everywhere, and it's still raining more. You don't know where you are. You're just lost in a storm for two full weeks, and then you could be blown out to the, again, to the ocean, but you crash land, bam, right into Malta. It's, you know, it's an easy trip to Rome from Malta. Like they were on the verge of death. All of them, anybody don't know, you're exactly where you want to be. Three months later, God gets him to Malta. Uh, he's still there. The Roman centurion or guard who's with him has got him still bound. They're picking up firewood to make some food that night with the local natives. He gets bit by a poisonous snake. Everyone is sure he's going to die. He doesn't die. He shakes it off and goes on. And then they travel to Rome. And the book's almost over uh, by the time they get there. Uh, let's look at verses... Mm, no, no, we're, gonna, we're just going to finish the story here because we've got about seven minutes left. Um, uh, he gets to Rome, uh, and he will be then in prison in Rome uh, for several years. That is how the story, according to Luke, is going to end the book of Acts. Uh, so again, Caesarea, he's there in jail in 55 AD, three months to Malta from there. 
Uh, and then he arrives in Rome in probably that same year, 55, 56, um, excuse me, maybe even 58 AD. Years are tough to pin down. But then what happens next? The book of Acts ends. Uh, what happens next is in 60 AD, he gets his trial before, uh, before Nero. And even though Nero is the same guy who's going to have him killed eight years later, Nero doesn't foresee the future as well as maybe he could. He doesn't hear any problem with Paul's confession. There's no record of this, by the way. We just have it from tradition that he is released. Um, and from there, uh, he goes to Lusitania. He goes to Spain. And he spends some time in Spain, maybe from 60 to 62, 63 AD. Um, uh, he's somewhere between Spain and the Isle of Crete, where he will serve with Titus for a while, uh, maybe around 64 AD, which that date's important because that is when you know Nero from. You know Nero because he fiddles while Rome burns, right? Uh, Rome burns in, in 64 AD. Nero, as the emperor of the city, uh, maybe was just so confused and isolated that he partied while it all burned down, or maybe he does what governments also often do, is when an area is so poor and so broken that there's no saving it, they just let it get destroyed so that they can buy it cheap and rebuild on it. And that's what he did next, is he extended his palace into the areas that had burned. So it wasn't like he was crazy. It was just he was evil, right? I guess there is a big difference. Uh, Caligula was, was crazy, so more Roman stories. Uh, 64 AD, Paul's in Crete. 65 AD, next year he travels to Ephesus, probably. Uh, spends a year or so there with Timothy. You notice a pattern there, maybe Titus and then Timothy. Who's he visiting? Well, the chief pastors of the next generation. That, that's who he's visiting. Um, and, and from there, uh, he goes up to Nicopolis, uh, and in the spring of 66, finds his way to Troas. This is like toward Greece and then into Greece. Uh, so he ends up in Greece by about 66 to 67 AD. He's there for a year or two, talking to various you know, churches, moving around. Um, 67 AD, Peter is in Rome. Peter's been the head preacher, apostle in Rome for quite some time, uh, at least as tradition holds. But there's an interesting bit, though, of all of the apostles sent by Jesus, only Peter and John are left by 65, 66, 67 AD. Everybody else has been killed. Peter's in Rome. John's probably in Ephesus. John will be in Ephesus for like 40 more years. Um, but Peter... Peter is going to be arrested in Rome in 67 AD by Nero and then put to death, crucified upside down for his Christian confession. What were the Christians doing that made Nero so angry? I didn't read about that this week, but I know that he began to persecute not only Christians in Rome. You can read a book called Flames of Rome, by the way, on the fiction, but it's on the, on the book table in the back there, in the back room. Um, not only does he do this in Rome, but we know that uh, he travels to Greece for the Olympic Games in 67 AD, and uh, somehow, some way, his troops, Paul, they come together, and Paul's under arrest and taken back to Rome. Was it planned by Nero? Probably. I, I don't have the cool story behind it, but it, what it means is that Paul is in Rome in 67 AD as well, uh, the year that Peter is, is crucified, 67, 68. They die the same year, they die in the same place, they die by the same hands, they probably don't die the same day. And they may or may not have met again, but certainly Paul, I think, is going to know about Peter's death before his comes. 
Of course, he's going to write things like 2 Timothy, which we just heard read about. He's being poured out like a drink offering. He'll write that from prison around this time, like goodbye. Um, uh, and then, well, he's, he's put to death in uh, 67, uh, 68 AD. Now, that same year, let me just give you a little bit more here. That same year, the, the new proconsul in Jerusalem, remember how there's like a series of these guys and they're all kind of dumb and a little bit selfish? He decides to confiscate 17 talents, that's 17 years wages, I think, um, from the temple treasury. Um, his name is Jesseus Flores, if you want that for fun. But the result of that is an uprising that sees his reign entirely overthrown. The zealots take Jerusalem as a city. Agrippa II, that guy, flees. <laughs> he flees. Um, Samaria joins in the rebellion and throws off the Syrian governor, Cestius Gallus. So now you got two provinces of Rome in utter rebellion and winning. And Nero is a little slow to believe it's even happening. He's kind of like, we're too big to fail sort of thing. Uh, but eventually he does decide to respond. He sends a guy named Vespasian in 67. Vespasian, a general, uh, will put Jerusalem under siege for two full years before Nero's uh, Praetorian guard assassinate Nero. And Vespasian, along with three other generals, decides I should be emperor. And so there's four emperors for one year. Vespasian leaves Jerusalem under the control of his son Titus for that year to go shore up his own victory and, in fact, does become the next emperor. Titus will be the next emperor after him. Titus destroys Jerusalem the first time uh, and uh, then will become emperor after Vespasian. Neither of them persecute Christians, but when Titus, who's been groomed by Vespasian to lead his whole life as the firstborn son, uh, when he dies young and unexpectedly, his younger brother, who's a little more of like, you know, he didn't really pay attention in school, um, he becomes emperor. His name's Domitian. And Domitian's going to kill Christians. Domitian's going to start persecution uh, in Jerusalem, uh, in, in Rome. That's just a setup of what happens next. It's incredible. After Titus destroys uh, Jerusalem, uh, he decides Jerusalem uh, shouldn't really be a, a Jewish city anymore. They start exiling people from there. It goes on. There's another rebellion 100 years later. Christians are underneath all of this. And this is maybe the, the final kind of takeaway point. Uh, throughout the morning, what you've heard, there's been Roman politics, there's been Jewish politics, there's been people who don't believe, there's been threats, there's been windstorms, there's been stonings, there's been all these things in life that make everything crazy, and through it all, Jesus is moving his Christians to salvation. One foot, one step, one word at a time. And so as you heard my telling of Paul running toward the tomb today, I want you to remember his words. I endured all these things, and from them Jesus saved me, every single one. And now I have laid up for me the cup of, the cup of blessing in my death. And so all the threats to Paul's life, all the things he went through, he could have died at any one of them, and he didn't always know whether he would or not, although sometimes he had a heads up, he'd get through it. But he knew that the day that he died would be a gift from Jesus, and that until then it was all in his hands. And as a result, he was able to live a life that you couldn't even make a movie about. You know how much I skipped today? I skipped so many things. This guy's life was incredible. Not really one you maybe want to live yourself again, but certainly one to inspire you to ask the question, right? Uh, what am I running from right now? 
What am I afraid of right now? What if I turned around and faced it? What if I knew that just as Paul, the worst, the worst man before Hitler, uh, became a Christian and changed the world, so also I am a Christian now, and my world's supposed to change every day, right in front of me, as I say the name of Jesus and call on him, ask him for aid in every trial and trouble, praise him for every good thing, find that there's gratitude when you learn contentment, when you don't need more, but you believe that God's going to give you enough. Every day your world's going to change through faith in Jesus Christ. Knowledge that he's the king, that he's, he's in charge of all things, and that he did all this with Paul just so that I could be here today telling you about it, just so you could eat that meal and walk out and face whatever you got to face a little bit less fearful. Surely a lot less fearful than you would be if you didn't know Christ. In the name of Jesus. Amen.